Welcome to another special episode of Canaan Rinse. Today we have an interview with somebody that I think you'll find really interesting. Here on the question block today, we have author Greg Topo, USA Today's top education writer. Prior to his journalism career, he was a teacher, giving him insight into the inner workings of the educational system and the prerogative to write education-based stories when he worked for the Santa Fe New Mexican newspaper. He began writing for USA Today in 2002, where he's been a prominent figure um, promoting educational reform, focusing more careful examination on the No Child Left Behind Act, and being awarded the Spencer Fellowship. Today, he's here to uh, talk a little bit about his new book, The Game Believes in You, How Digital Play Can Make Our Kids Smarter, which is available both in uh, hardcover and on uh, Kindle and other electronic devices. Hey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I guess uh, I just wanted to start with the big, broad question. When talking about education reform, why focus on games specifically? You know, um... I'm glad you asked that. What I found in covering education for about the past almost 15 years is that there was this interesting divide um, that I kept seeing. And it was this. On the one hand, you know, we had a lot of people who were really focused on helping our kids compete academically with the rest of the world. Mm. This was a group of people who wanted to make school more rigorous and harder and really sort of up the up the level of work that kids were doing. And then on the other side, there was this other group of people who wanted to make school a more interesting and fun and enjoyable and embracing place for kids. And they were seeing that um, the experience of school really wasn't what it could be. And these two sides, in my experience, never talked to one another. Um, it, it, it was as if they didn't really sort of acknowledge the existence of the other side. And when I started going down the path of uh, talking to folks who were interested in games and education and games for learning, what I found was not only were these two sides talking to one another for the first time, they were actually the same people. They were basically embracing both sides of this, that you could make school a more rigorous, more serious place, but you could also make it more fun and more enjoyable. And that I'd never seen before, and it sort of fascinated me. So I really wanted to find out more about that. One of the main arguments that I've heard when this conversation has come up in the past is that uh, games help kind of shift the landscape of the type of content that's being taught in that uh, we're kind of at an age now where at our laptops and our our smartphones, we have the entirety of human knowledge at our fingertips. And so um, being able to memorize and regurgitate facts, you know, the uh, the names of Christopher Columbus's ships and whatnot is is not really uh, useful anymore, unless your career plan is being a Jeopardy winner or something like that. But, you know, people have been using games as a way of fostering more collaborative exercises and ways of more creative problem solving. Uh, well, what have you found in this regard in uh, in your investigation into this? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say memorization and facts are obsolete, but mm. I would say, um, to your point, that, you know, games, among other tools... I think have a real potential to help sort of deepen 
the kinds of learning that kids are doing in school. And that's something we've been struggling with for centuries, you know, how to get richer material in front of kids and help them understand it and help, you know, I mean, the, the, the phrase, or the term that I hear a lot these days from educators, and I like it, is stickiness. You know, they want to make hmm. school more sticky. Um, they want kids to get it and like it and retain it. Um, and I think, I think games have a huge potential to do that sort of thing. It's a different kind of learning. I think it's a deeper kind of learning, but I also think it's more appropriate to the kinds of work uh, that you know young people are going to have to do in the next generation. Absolutely. This idea of retention and of especially cross-applying information to analogous but not entirely similar fields is something that we've always kind of struggled with in the past. My background is in psychology, so I'm really interested in, in these types of questions. What are games doing on a cognitive level that other teaching tools are not able to? That's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think to me what happens when a kid is playing a game cognitively, it, they're really sort of firing on all cylinders, if you will. It's really demanding a lot of the player, whereas a lot of the kinds of things that they might do uh, in a day really aren't as cognitively demanding. I mean, one of the things that I talk about in one of the chapters is just this idea that games, they, they're doing the opposite of what they look like they're doing. You know, we think that sort of kids are sort of slacking and sort of kicking back when they're playing games, mm, when yeah. actually, you know, they're being challenged. I mean, what I say, I mean, to just sort of paraphrase what I say in the book, you know, it looks like sort of escapism is actually concentration. What looks like instant gratification is delayed gratification. It really fascinates me to think about, you know, for instance, the kinds of rules that are, the strict sort of adherence to rules that a player, you know, applies when they're playing a game. I mean, we don't really give, I think that, we don't give that sort of thing enough credence. I mean, gamers are really, you know, focusing on and, and following rules and trying to figure out sort of a path through um, the rules when they're playing a game, you know, we, we just think it's sort of relaxation when it, 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 in fact, it's sort of anything but. I mean, they're, I think cognitively gamers are really, you know, looking for a challenge. And it's so ironic that we think, you know, gamers are sort of eternal slackers. <laughs> I say they're sort of eternal strivers as a group. Mm. It's always interesting to hear the stories about the types of algorithms that people create to help them with their odds of catching certain Pokemon or whatever. And it goes back to, uh, you know, how much, how deep an understanding of probabilities people obtain just by learning how to play poker. And, you know, that's pre-video game era, but that's uh, a kind of same rules apply, so to speak. No, I think that's right. I think, I mean, I think there's so much more sort of going on beneath the hood, if you will, than we... I mean, even a lot of gamers think, um, but you know, mostly non-gamers, I think, don't really appreciate what's really happening cognitively when people are playing games. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's one of the things, I mean, it's sort of among the many things that I wanted to kind of, you know, kind of dig through in the book. I mean, and I actually had more fun doing that than almost anything else, you know, reward schedules and just, just looking at the really fascinating the psychology of gaming. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the history of uh, B.F. Skinner trying to introduce kind of more Skinnerian reward tactics into uh, educational forums in the past. And uh, mentioned, of course, developmental psychologists have heralded the importance of play in learning for decades. And so why is play such an essential evolutionary tool? I mean, I think uh, it's so funny in a way 
that we need to ask that question. I mean, all we need to do is look around, right? I mean, you know, all you have to do is turn on 20 minutes of any nature show that ever was to see that higher animals, we are included in that, <laughs> are, you know, that's how the way we learn. We learn by playing. We learn by trying stuff out. You know, we learn by simulation, if you will. I mean, what are, you know, lions on the savanna doing? You know, that <laughs> when they're not hunting, they're practicing hunting, right, by playing with one another, right? We've got, you know, dogs and cats, you know, they do the same thing. And I, th I think we learn by playing um, in a pretty deep way. And I guess the, the, the argument that I make in the book is that, you know, we as adults, we, we get that, we understand that play is important, but then at a certain point, maybe when kids are like nine or 10, we basically say, okay, playtime's over, <laughs> get to work. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I maintain that we shouldn't say that. We should say, okay, this certain kind of playtime's over. Let's figure out another kind of playtime that will reap some different benefits, um, maybe even more sophisticated benefits. And that's kind of the argument I make in the book, which is that, you know, if we were to kind of take another look at play and really think more seriously about it, we'd see that it would be really, really valuable thing. I mean, all we need to look at is, is you know, the, the sort of the habits of young people when they're not in school. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, huge percentages of, game, of young people are gamers. And what are they doing after school? They're getting together and they're challenging one another to get better at something. Mm -hmm. In a way, I mean, this generation, I mean, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a previous generation. I'm a baby boomer. We didn't really do that as much as I think this generation does. We, we mostly just sort of consumed media, <laughs> um, you know, went home and watched TV reruns. Young people today really in a way, have kind of a, a, a richer way of interacting with media. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's like, you know, TV that asks you to do something for it. Um, and I think that's really, to me, that's really promising. Absolutely. We can see people improve, certainly, at their skills at, you know, Rock Band or Call of Duty or whatever it is that they decide to focus their attention on. It's just kind of is are those skills and are the things that they're learning kind of locked within that one context or can they be utilized for a wider variety of things? And that's kind of the heart of what the, of the, what the book gets at. And you start off the book with one particular example of Gigi the Penguin who helped um, children in Washington, D.C. learn their arithmetic. Uh, what is it about Gigi that inspired such academic progress? I think basically what, what Gigi does, so Gigi is just this little digital penguin that walks across the screen on each level of this math game. Very simple piece of software. Doesn't say anything, doesn't, you know, sing or dance. Gigi, when you know, when you solve a math problem, she goes from left to right and disappears off the right side of the screen. If you get it wrong... The game basically builds a barrier and sort of she sort of bumps up against it, turns around and walks back the way she came. What it is is really interesting little just indicator of progress. What I like about it is that both on the sort of the positive and the negative side, it is very minimal piece of information. If you've got the wrong answer, Gigi doesn't sort of heckle you and tell you, you know, <laughs> you're a loser or even suggests, you know, try again. Gigi just you know, just turns around and goes back. And so the message is clear, but it's very kind of subtle. It's just try it again. But when you do uh, succeed, when you do get the right answer, Gigi goes across the screen and disappears. And the message is, okay, you did it. And the reward isn't like fireworks or music or anything like that. The, the reward is almost immediately another problem. <laughs> so mm. to, to me, it's, 
it's a really I think that's a healthy way to, to to look at it. It's if you didn't get it, try again. When you did get it, try a harder one. And it just builds and builds and builds. I mean, in a way, it's kind of an interesting feedback loop. You associate if you're you know nine years old, you you know you associate getting a problem right with a next harder problem, <laughs> and it, it sort of yeah, before you yeah. know it, you've been doing math for an hour. And I, I think it's just a really smartly designed. Um, piece of software and kids just i mean the, the the developer of this game talks about gg culture you know that gg just sort of helps bring about this this sort of very quiet implicit idea that of course yeah i can do it let's i'll do it and i'll do more and i'll do it until i'm done one of the to me the most moving moments um reporting this book was when at another school in in um and actually in silicon valley um in san jose i just happened to sit next to a kid who was doing gg um, in fourth grade, and I, I was trying to suggest it was really, really hard problem. And on the one hand, I thought, oh my God, you know, fourth grade math is much harder than when I was <laughs> in school. And I was trying to suggest to this kid, maybe you should do this because he was kind of stuck on the problem. And, you know, none of my solutions worked <laughs> at all. <laughs> and, and, and he just sort of kept at it. And then at one point I said to him, I kind of I, I sidled up to him, you know, and I said, wow, this is really hard math. And the look on this kid's face was just priceless. He was basically, on the one hand, saying, like, who the heck are you? And <laughs> would you please leave me alone? I'm busy. Um, and I thought that was really kind of promising. Like, it, hmm. it, it, basically, I was interrupting what was a very intense uh, concentration session for him. And a pleasurable experience, nonetheless. Yeah. And, and I was, I mean, it, it, instead of me being sort of the person that was sort of you know, egging him on and encouraging him and, mm-hmm. you know, really keeping him going, I was sort of detracting from that experience. I mean, <laughs> the, the software had done what it was supposed to do. I was sort of the, the, the distraction. That's interesting. This idea of, uh, of punishment and of negative feedback, uh, traditionally homework is designed to be aced, ideally, if the student is putting forth their full effort and has a robust understanding of the content being assessed, where games, on the other hand, are made to be failed and repeated. So how do you sell teachers, parents, and even students themselves on the idea of introducing more failure into the primary school environment? I mean, I think what's important is is not so much the failure as the reaction to it. I, I think people innately sort of get failure and get the importance of being able to try again um, I mean, you know, we do it, you know, we do it in, in our daily lives. Um, it's just a matter of keeping the stakes low enough so that it's okay to just try again. You know, you know, you burn the toast in the morning. Well, you know, the only one relying on the toast is you. So you just, you know, you, you make another slice of toast. Whereas if you burn the toast for 12 people, the stakes are much higher. Mm, and, yeah. and you'd have sort of a more negative association with burning toast. And I, and I think that's, to me, that's key, that we understand that failure is going to happen. It's just a matter of what are the stakes and what is the system we're interacting with do with us next, which is why I like the way most games deal with failure. I mean, one of, one of the things, I don't mention this in the book, but one of the things that really helped me understand this was playing um, this uh, motorcycle racing game, what I found was that, you know, it's just sort of time trials. And you may know, mm-hmm. even know the game, you know, Trials. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's many different versions of it now. Um, mm-hmm. I really got very, very hooked on this game, mostly because what what I discovered was that, you know, I was crashing basically <laughs> all the time. And <laughs> the, the, 
the cost of crashing was incredibly low. It was just mm, hit yeah. the reset button and get started again. There was no sound or wah, 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 or you idiot. It was just, you know, try again, do it again, start it again. Uh, you know, and you were starting, you were back at the finish line at a moment's notice until you um, succeeded. I, I went back at one point, you know, the game allows you to essentially look at your statistics like a lot of these games do. And I went back at one point and I found that, you know, after having played this game for just a little while after I'd opened the box, um, I think I had restarted one level like 1,800 times. And I think, you know, uh-huh. I mean, why can't we have that easy restarting um, in school? Mm. And, and I, I think good teachers try try to lower the cost of failure. It's just a matter of, you know, whether they're, whether the structure of school allows them to do that. Absolutely. One of the points that you keep coming back to in the book is that games are described as infinitely patient personal teachers individualizing the lesson plans for the students in the way that would um, that would be kind of budget and time restrictive for human teachers to do. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't want to make too much of individualization. I mean, there's a way in which if you're if you set a kid free to do work, you know, it's already individualized, right? I mean, you know, you and I may get the same 10 math problems and you may finish them in 12 minutes and maybe it'll take me 15. Well, that's sort of individualization. If you allow it to happen, I think that games sort of take that to the next level and they really, you know, they react to what a kid does mm, in, a, yeah. in a way that maybe is, is more helpful. So let's say, you know, we do the same 10 math problems. If I get a wrong answer on three of them, the paper isn't talking back to me, right? The paper isn't telling me, no, you got this one wrong, try it again. The paper's waiting till it's graded, and you know, that may not happen for another day or two. Right, right. <laughs> I'm of the incorrect impression that five plus three equals nine. <laughs> You're allowed to believe that until you get that, you know, delayed response that tells you otherwise. So um, games produced to be educational tools are obvious picks for academic use, like Math Blaster and the Magic School Bus, Dragon Box. But how about games that do not set out with educational aspirations in their front and center? So can the average Pokemon and Monkey Island still have educational value? I mean, I think so. Um, Educational is a funny word. I mean, I think any good game is going to be, at some level, is going to be sort of a a puzzle and a problem-solving space. And I think even if the content is, you know, minimal, um, even if all you're doing is getting from point A to point B, I think that's really valuable. Mm. You know, what is Mario? Uh, or, you know, I mean, name any platformer that you've ever played. I mean, the, the, the content is, is kind of minimal in some ways, but the things you have to do to get from, from A to B, I think, are really what's key um, and really what, what we should be focusing on. I mean, I would tend to say that just about any game is going to have some real cognitive benefits, hmm. um, even if it's just you know Candy Crush. I mean, I would I would prefer, and I think a lot I think people would learn more about the cognitive benefits of gaming if they played better games than Candy Crush. <laughs> sure. Which I mean, there we can get into this, but I I mean I, I basically feel that there are a lot of ga- popular games that are sort of you know just one step above like a slot machine. But I think games and I think good games in general, I think have real value, even if there's no sort of educational content. That gives you the opportunity to learn a very simple system of inputs and then think of kind of creative outside of the box ways to iterate on those throughout the game as they become more complex. 
So you describe games as being an ultimate decadence, assimilating and transforming aspects of all other arts and disciplines. How has this affected the ways that kids consume other medias and arts? Yeah, that's a, I, I think that was really interesting to me to read that. And, and I think there's some real truth to it. I mean, when, when I use the word term ultimate decadence, I mean, basically what I'm, and it's not me who said it, um, somebody else said it, um, you know, essentially what it's to me telegraphing is that games really they don't skimp on on either the graphics or the sound or the content in general i mean they it's very rare the game that has like no sound or or graphics that aren't inviting or some sort of mechanic that doesn't just grab you by the throat to me that's what i'm talking about when i'm talking about decadence that they really are luxurious in a way they're inviting you into a really wonderful space. I mean, I don't really talk too much about it, but I guess I, one, of, one of my desires is to sort of think about how we can bring that kind of orientation, that decadence, that, that sort of lavishness to what happens in school. I mean, there's a way in which school, we've got this sort of Puritan ethic that it's got to be sort of stripped down, mm-hmm. painful. <laughs> and people have to suffer to, to do well in school. And I would say, no, you know, I don't think people have to suffer. I think you know, kind of wrap them up in something nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you'll find that they'll kind of go along. I mean, and it's not in any way sort of fooling anybody. I mean, I, I you know, I use the example throughout the book of thinking of games as a technology the way we think of like the piano as technology, right? I mean, I would say that, mm-hmm. I would say that a piano is a decadent instrument too, right? I mean, you sit down and you play that thing, you get some amazing sound out of that. I mean, even a, 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 even a very beginner player can get a remarkable sound out of a piano it's an invitation to do great things Hmm. an invitation to sort of enjoy what it produces and really just sort of luxuriate in it i don't think we have that orientation in school most of the time Uh, now there are many objections that those unfamiliar with games are likely to raise when this type of uh, implementation into the primary schools is discussed so we kind of uh, address these one by one one of the big ones is that games rot the mind so to speak is an objection that has been pretty thoroughly debunked by now but it's still pretty commonly believed that games lead to decreased attention spans at least kind of promoting adhd type behaviors yeah i mean i would defer to someone like you who's the psychologist. I mean, I, I, I guess my, just from my outsider perspective and having read some of the researches that that's, there's nothing really to support that. Um, I think when we talk about, you know, kids having ADHD or kids suffering from attention problems, I mean, to me, we have to look at it a little more holistically and say, well, tell me what you're asking kids to pay attention to mm, yeah. you know, in school. I mean, the same kid who we says has who we say has attention problems can spend four hours attending to, paying attention to a game. Um, you know, I mean, one of the smartass things that I that I was thought about as I was writing one of the the chapter that talks about ADHD mm-hmm. is I, I mean I had this idea and it never made it into the book, but I had this idea that I was going to find a kid who's like diagnosed with ADHD mm-hmm. and go into like a GameStop with him. And just ask him to get the ADHD version of, you know, Destiny hmm. or Assassin's Creed. And, you know, the kind of the, the big joke, of course, is that there is no ADHD version of it. The kid who's got the ADHD diagnosis plays the same damn game as everybody else, <laughs> right? That's right, yeah. And some of these are requiring very um, 
you know, very concentrated attention on on lots of minor details and juggling a lot of different systems in your mind all at once. That's right. And and nobody would ever say no, you know, the kid with the ADHD diagnosis, no, you can't handle this. You know, this, you know, we need to give it to you in chunks. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I'm being kind of a smart ass about it, but if the, our school systems looked at students more as users than, and less as, you know, patients, if you will, mm-hmm. I think we would have a different orientation to them. And I think we would think more in those terms that, you know, how is it that this kid who we say is sort of disabled or special or can't handle what we're giving him can do these amazing things in another context. Mm. You know, one of the things I say is, you know, that when when things go wrong in school, you know, we look, you know, we look to what's happening, what's what's going wrong in a kid's life, right? You know, we we, we want to say, you know, is it, are they sleep deprived? Are their parents not home a lot? Are they hungry? You know, what are the things that are going wrong? And what I you know, the kind of the observation that I make is that, well, you know, if you're a game designer, you can't rely on that. If if people don't like your game and if people can't play your game, you can't say, yeah, you know, most of my players were sleep deprived. <laughs> a, a, a game has to be, people have to be sex- successful at it in all those different conditions. And, and in, in fact, you know, a game designer can probably be pretty assured that most of their players are going to be sleep deprived and most of them will not have had a good breakfast mm, yeah. and their parents don't pay much attention to them and, and on and on and on. So uh, I'm not saying schools, you know, look for excuses. I'm just saying it's, it's a different orientation that's worth thinking a little bit about. Mm. Uh, another common objection is that games are frivolous and remove the process of creation and imagination from players. When, uh, when, when readers sit down with the Harry Potter books, they have to create the world of Hogwarts in their own mind. Whereas if you have a fully explorable environment, that level of, uh, of imagination is, is not afforded to the player. How would you react to that? I mean, I, w- I would actually agree. <laughs> I, I would say, sure, you know, reading a book is a richer experience in some ways than uh, playing a, a, a Harry Potter video game. Let's, where, yeah, you know, the whole thing is basically drawn for you every second or every, you know, many, many times a second. It's a different experience, but I don't think it's a, a lesser experience. I, I just think, you know, we have to we have to consider why kids would enjoy both experiences and and try to figure out ways to, to help them enjoy both experiences and mm. sort of to gain from, you know, gain from them and also to have one sort of inform the other. Mm, yeah, rather than replace the other. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I mean, a lot of people, their first reaction to my book is, oh, you're just trying to make school easier, trying to kind of, you know, it's like a, like a cop-out, it's like an easy way out. Uh-huh. And, and I say, no, it's just the opposite. I want to make school harder. I want to make I, I want to bring sort of richer stuff into school. That's right. They didn't read about Gigi, it seems. Yeah. And, and Gigi is sort of just the beginning in a way, I think. Yeah. What we haven't talked about, though, is this idea, I mean, that I talk about in the beginning of the book that I actually got into looking at video games because I was worried about reading. Right. I right. had a conversation with one of my daughters about books, and it really kind of disturbed me because I realized that she wasn't, she didn't have a relationship to books, and she certainly didn't have the relationship to books that I had at her age. So I started getting curious about that. And what I found was that books, unfortunately, I guess some people would say, are you know just a very small piece of the media landscape that kids now swim in. Right. And we just have to sort of deal with that. I mean, we can't wish it away. We certainly can't say everything but books is bad. Um, we have to figure out how we're going to keep reading and how we're going to keep deep thinking and concentration and all those things we still want, 
I mean, I haven't given up on all that. How to keep those things we still want sort of in the forefront and keep them, you know, something that kids will still like to do. And I mean, in, in a way, sort of the solution that I come up with is, you know, we have to embrace all these different kinds of media and we have to figure out ways that they can help focus the mind and they can help, you know, get kids thinking back to the books, mm, yeah, back to stories. In one of the chapters, I mean, if we're talking about reading, you know, one of the chapters I talk about this really interesting game called Lexica is I think going to start being available commercially. I mean, when, when I was doing the reporting, it was just for school use. And what it is is sort of this basically sort of this big open world game um, that takes place in a library. And it, you're basically going on quests with characters from classic literature. And the game invites you I mean, it doesn't require you to read, you know, Treasure Island or Alice in Wonderland or what have you, but it invites you to, to, to meet those characters and think about who they are and wonder, like, how did, you know, how, why do they talk like this and what, what is their point of view? And then go back and read the books, you know, and actually one of the interesting things about it is that this game was built in a, a sort of a tablet format and the tablet that kids were handed had all these books in them mm, yeah. in an ebook form. So you can sort of, in a way, sort of toggle between the game and the books. And reading the books and finding out about the books helps you do better at the game and vice versa. <laughs> Especially in the electronic format, those books are easier to access than ever before because so many of them are public domain now. And you can get Alice in Wonderland for free if you so choose, legally even. <laughs> and one of the other things about it, which we haven't talked about, is, is this idea that when, when you're playing this game, among a million others, obviously... We tend to think about kids playing games or people in general playing games as isolated and all by themselves and sort of just staring into a screen. Right. And what a lot of people, I think, who aren't gamers don't appreciate is that there's usually somebody on the other end of that interaction. It's usually your friend or someone you met online. It's someone you're playing the game with. And this Lexica game, among others, you know, it, it invites you to, to have you know, conversations and and collaborate with your friends in a, in a way sort of it, it sort of reimagines reading as a, almost sort of a more social experience. Yeah, which is something that books had a hard time offering themselves. I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I have on my wall in my office this picture of people all sitting there staring, you know, sitting on a porch staring at their books. And it says, you know, over oh, the days when we used to isolate each other, isolate one another, <laughs> yeah, everybody's just staring uh -huh. at their book. <laughs> Yeah, and as we've discussed earlier, it's not necessarily that video games have replaced reading, but they have assimilated it and absorbed it. And, you know, reading is a big part of what makes gaming an artistic medium. People who play through one of those grand Japanese RPG games have read, you know, thousands and thousands of pages of text. That's right. That's right. And that, yeah, and that's another piece of it, too, which is, you know, what, what scholars would call affinity groups, right? Mm -hmm. Which basically means just you like something a lot and you find other people who like it too. You get into something like one of these games and you want to find out more about it. So you do, you end up going down a kind of rabbit hole of research and reading and yeah, absolutely. in a way gamers designed it like that, right? Gaming was never part of the sort of mainstream culture. Right. And I think even now it's not, even though it makes more money than you know, movies and recorded music combined, I still think there's this funny way in which it's not part of the mainstream. When you go to the movies every week, you know, you know who the movie stars are, right? You even know who the directors are and sometimes even the screenwriters. A game, you have no idea who created it, right? <laughs> hmm. I mean, 
nobody knows. I mean, except really hardcore gamers who 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 want to find out more about that. Yeah, yeah. And the one last objection that is likely to be raised is that games are violent. I mean, video games are among the first things blamed for school shootings, especially uh, an already far too common occurrence within the United States. You know, my my school, my university was just shot up last year, and it's becoming much more common occurrence each and every year. And surely those who believe games are responsible for tragedies like Columbine and the Sandy Hook shootings will object to games being further interjected into classrooms. I'm glad you asked that. And and, and my, my immediate response is go get my book and read chapter 11, <laughs> right. because I sort of tackled this head on. Mm-hmm. What happened is interesting, because what happened was I didn't intend to to really look into the violence piece of it. But whenever I went anywhere telling people I was writing a book about video games, that's what they wanted to know about. Yeah. They wanted to know about Minecraft <laughs> <laughs> because their kid was gone on Minecraft and they wanted to know about violence. They mm-hmm. were asking me basically, you know, if I let my kid play one of these violent games, is it going to make my kid into another school shooter? Right. And I, I, I mean, I don't know how to say this unequivocally, but, you know, the answer is no. I mean, if you are enough of a good parent to ask that question, the answer is definitely no, hmm. because the research has shown very, very clearly that there is no connection between playing violent games and being a violent person and doing violent things. If anything, the research is showing it's just the opposite, that hmm. games have, even violent games, have a sort of a protective effect. One of the interesting bits of research that I found was that as new violent games come out, what researchers have found is that violence goes down in the communities, you know, where, you know, in cities and suburbs. Nobody's really poked into that deeply enough, but I think the suggestion is that all the people who would be violent are inside playing a game for a couple of weeks. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, you know, if you have 97% of young people playing games, mm-hmm. certainly, I mean, certainly among the, the kind of the demographic who would be violent at that age, to see the rise in video games, violent, nonviolent, all kinds of games, to, to see that percentage of people playing going up and up and up and up and up, you'd expect that violence would go up. And if anything, violence has gone down in the past 20 years, um, youth violence especially. Right, right. So, I mean, I, I, there's really no argument to stand on. I could go on and on about this. I, I think people just need to stop swallowing the sort of the conventional wisdom on this and just think a little bit more deeply about it. Players understand at a very deep level that what they're doing is a fantasy. What they're doing is not real. They're not killing real people. And as a matter of fact, if you ask them, you know, even in the even in the grip of a violent game, you know, would you take a real gun and shoot the kid next to you? The answer would be no. One of the things I, I say, and, and I think it's an important thing to think about, is that, you know, when we as adults, you know, point fingers at games and, and, and we say, you know, that's making you a violent person, we are in, in kind of a weird way saying, you know, you kid can't tell the difference between fantasy and reality, right? I'm worried that you can't tell the difference. And just saying that shows them that we can't tell the difference between fantasy and reality, right? You know, the kid who's sitting there playing the game gets it. We don't get it when we're so worried because, you know, we're thinking the one is the other when in fact it's not. If anything, it's the opposite. I mean, one of the things that I say in the book is I, I, I kind of confronted head on I look at the uh, Connecticut State Police report from the Sandy Hook shooting, 
And what I find is that the shooter, Adam Lanza, was actually obsessed with a video game, an arcade game, um, playing it, you know, for basically nonstop for almost a decade. And I'm not going to give away the name of the game, but it's not any of the games that you'd think he was playing. And I think that's really instructive. Yeah, and you know, we come back to having a problem with base rates more than anything. If you think like, oh, you know, such a huge percentage of these school shooters are, are gamers, that same percentage of the total population are gamers. And so really what we're seeing is not necessarily anything indicative about shooters. It's, it's indicative of the generation that they come from. I think that's right. I mean, such a huge percentage of, you know, students who get straight A's at MIT are also gamers. I mean, a huge percentage of just about anything you'd want are gamers, because just about everyone is a gamer at this point. (laughs) That's right. You give examples of the ways that video games let kids inhabit the worlds that they're learning about. Uh, You recounted an example of how Sid Meier's Pirates made one student kind of the expert for for a point with cross-Atlantic naval trade during the colonial era, because he lived it as if it was as, uh, you know, real as the classroom was himself. And... Uh, we've had those moments of transcendence when we forgot that we were playing Assassin's Creed and believe ourselves to be in revolutionary Paris or Renaissance Italy. One particular example I'm interested in that you raise in your book is that of uh, Thoreau's Walden Pond being adapted into an interactive format. Now, how did that work? Yeah, and that's a game that's just actually, we're just now starting to see it. It's been in development for about eight years. And it's it's essentially sort of a very long time dream of a someone who I think is a really important person in this world, Tracy Fullerton at the University of Southern California. And she was someone who actually read Walden when she was a kid. You know, she talks about going on family vacations and the sound of her family was on vacation was the sound of pages turning. And she loved uh, Thoreau from a very young age. And at some point, a couple of years ago, realized that, you know, he's laying out in, in Walden, he's laying out the sort of philosophical system about how to live your life. And she thought this would be a really interesting game and a really um, wonderful thing to sort of let people trace their own path through the woods, literally and metaphorically, through the sort of the way to live a life. Um, so it basically invites you to think and act like Thoreau um, in the woods. And just for what it's worth, I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. You know, talk about decadence. It's absolutely beautiful reenactment um, of the pond. I mean, they used, you know, geological survey maps and they used Walden maps that Thoreau had actually drawn. He was a surveyor. Um, And when you play this game, it is really just breathtakingly beautiful. Basically a first person perspective of the pond and the area around it, the walk into um, Concord, Massachusetts. Really remarkable game. One of the details that I love and I always tell people about is that the, the sound designer who, who worked on this game lives up there, and he wasn't satisfied just having, you know, sort of canned birds and crickets and whatnot. Mm, mm-hmm. He actually took his digital recorder out and recorded the sounds of Walden. So when you're playing the game, you're actually hearing the sounds that one would hear at the, at the pond. But the, the detail I'd love is that once he had gotten all the tapes together, he talked to the birding community up there, and they told him that if there were any cardinals in the soundtrack, that he needed to get rid of them because there were no cardinals in the Walden Pond in 1842. Huh, interesting. So he actually had to 
take the cardinal down. <laughs> it really boggles the mind when you have to, when you start thinking in those terms. Yeah, the task to create a world is, you know, by by definition kind of godlike in nature, like it's a huge huge task to undertake. Yeah, and it really I mean and and I suffer a little bit from the disadvantage of not having played the entire thing. I mean, when I was doing mm-hmm. the reporting, I was just able to play chunk of it but even just a you know an hour long chunk it's about a six six and a half hour game Mm -hmm. even just playing about an hour of it just transports you right into that world and you really start thinking like Thoreau and thinking you know okay what would I do in this situation what would Thoreau Mm -hmm. do in this situation you know what was he trying to get at What, what kinds of thoughts were going through his mind if I want to live like him, what do I? What would I do right now? Hmm. And the game really is interesting because to the idea of failure, it doesn't tell you, you know, no, you're not a very good Thoreau. It just says you are sort of a different version of him depending on what you do. And that's fine, but it's not exactly what he had in mind. Hmm. Tracy gives an interesting kind of a way to think about it. She says, you know, you could be like a Walden millionaire if you wanted to. <laughs> you could plow the, 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 the fields and grow millions of acres of beans if you wanted to. But, you know, what you'd be giving up would be sort of the, you'd have to actually go out for hours and sort of, you know, hoe the fields and weed and pick the beans and go to town and sell them. And that's fine. And you may enjoy that and buying shirts and books and whatnot. But you'd miss out in those six hours, you know, being able to sit and think and listen to birdsong and read books and hang out by the pond. So it's basically, it's, you know, let's talk about Sid Meier. You know, he was the one who said, you know, a game is like a series of interesting choices, right? Yeah. Tracy would say, you know, you have a lot of interesting choices to make in this game. It's a very kind of postmodern approach to creating a world as well. I'm really eager to see what happens. Yeah, sounds interesting. You can actually go into, you know, they've, they've, they've actually developed... As part of the game, you can go into Emerson's library and read books. So hmm. books are not hung out to dry. <laughs> That's right. So just as traditional literacy is a fundamental aspect of using books in school, so too must we consider game literacy. Being able to read or even use computers is not enough to ensure that children will be able to uh, guess, get the most out of these interactive artistic experiences how should teachers approach and instruct game literacy specifically? Yeah, that's that's actually a really good question. And it's not something that I dig into very much. And actually, you know, one of the things that one of my sort of regrets about the book is that I didn't really spend enough time thinking about game design from a kid's point of view. It would have benefited from talking about teaching kids how to design games hmm things like Game Star Mechanic in, in one of the chapters, you know, which is basically a game about making games. But I don't really talk too much about like teaching kids coding or game design. And I think I think that is going to be kind of a, a really important literacy going forward. Now, just as dyslexic children might not be able to engage with Lord of the Flies to the same degree as other students, uh, so too might students prone to virtual motion sickness have a disadvantage when using Minecraft or Portal as study tools. Do you think that these inequalities or handicaps might be a roadblock to introducing these into schools? I definitely think as this world moves into VR and things like that, I think we're really going to have to answer a lot of these questions. (laughs) That's right. I I get sick when I look in, you know, VR goggles. Mm -hmm. And for what it's worth, I mean, you know, the first few times that I played games like Halo or, you know, Bioshock or what have you, mm-hmm. I got a bad case of vertigo. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's a very common thing, too, especially, you know, gamers who have been playing games for their entire lives are having all sorts of headaches and nausea when they strap on an Oculus Rift or something. So it's it's not an unusual experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess 
there are sort of immersive virtual reality mm-hmm. type games, but then there are like stuff I can play on my iPad that approaches the material maybe with a sort of a lighter touch, mm. maybe not an, an immersive experience, but it just gives me sort of a chunk of something I can experience. We should look at games not as something we use for their own sake, but as a tool. Yeah, yeah. And if the tool is making you sick or making some of your students sick, then don't use it. Yeah, use a different tool. That's right. You know, wait till they make a better tool. I, you know, I look at it as like a better pencil sharpener, right? I mean, the, the silly observation that I make is that you know, every classroom in America has two pencil sharpeners, right? It has the one on the wall that eats your pencil, and then it has the one <laughs> on the teacher's desk that actually works. The reason it's there is because the teacher long ago decided that it was a better way to go. Yeah. And they went out and got it. They probably spent 15 bucks at Staples and just decided, no, they didn't have to ask anybody's permission. They just went and got it. And that's the way I like to look at this, that a game can be a very sort of low level, bottom up, quiet reform. Hmm. Teacher with an iPad can do some damage, right? They can really, they can really make interesting things happen in a classroom and nobody has to know if i had a you know you talked about dragon box earlier it's a really really Mm -hmm. amazing clever beautiful little algebra game it's 4.99 on the app store you know if i were a teacher i could pass that thing around in the course of a week to my entire second grade class and every kid would get a taste of algebraic thinking i think that's a really powerful thing and and it's and it's built to be an immersive experience. I mean, it's an iPad, so obviously you're not you don't have goggles, mm-hmm. but it's it's meant to take the user from point A to point B a hundred levels, you know, without having to have any help at all, without mm-hmm. any inter- interaction with a teacher. It's meant to, and it's really kind of a in, in some ways it's sort of a miraculous little game. I mean, it's meant to take someone who doesn't think algebraically to think algebraically in a hundred levels. To me, I think the kind of the amazing thing about it is it starts the student off with basically moving around pictures of little creatures. And by the end of the game, it basically presents you with this scenario where you've got little cards on either end of the board. It's sort of like an electronic card game. And you're moving around the cards and kind of putting one on top of the other and matching negatives with positives. And essentially, you're, you're doing this throughout these levels and little by little the pictures start to get replaced with symbols and eventually there's an equal sign between the two halves of the board. So you soon learn, I mean, if you're somebody who knows what algebra is, you soon learn that essentially you're manipulating the variables of an equation. Oh, interesting. And by the end of the game, you've gone from essentially this dragon in the box eating a little spiky lizard mm-hmm. to, and I swear I'm not making this up, this is the level 100, this is the equation you solve. 2 over X plus D over E equals B over X. <laughs> That's a $4.99 game in the App Store. And it's geared toward kids as young as preschool. Wow. What I say in the chapter is that, you know, you've been building up to that point for so long that you're very confident about your ability to move these things around, to solve this sort of problem. And you look at it and you start moving things around, you start solving the equation, and you do it in exactly 14 steps because that's how many it takes, and you do it even maybe a little bit impatiently, and <laughs> you've, you've solved that, that problem. And, and it's really quite remarkable. And if you could sort of, and, if, and it's a way in which if you could sort of 
like reverse engineer it, you'd see, oh, okay, now I see what they wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Interesting how you can get that kind of retrospective look back at the uh, the design from the inside. Yeah, but I'm, but I'm, and I'm going to apologize. I'm afraid I've kind of gotten far afield from your actual Oh, question. no, no, that's totally fine. <laughs> but I do, I mean, I will say one thing that, you know, I've, I've been to E3 and I've, especially this past year, I was there. Mm-hmm. Virtual reality was what everybody was talking about. Right. And I do worry a little bit as just, I mean, I'm not a really big gamer, but I do worry like as an outsider looking at that, that I, I feel like if that's what people are focusing on, it could really have a, have a negative effect because on the one hand, the, the equipment is kind of expensive mm. and it takes quite a commitment and on the other hand, I you know you mentioned you know kids maybe who can't do well in this in this environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I want to be really sensitive to that, but I'd also want to be really sensitive to the fact that everything is not all encompassing and amazing and something that has to wrap around you in such a thoroughgoing way. So I mean, I think smart people will sort of keep the virtual reality away unless they really need it. I think a pretty simple game can be immersive and can be really satisfying. And I would say you know maybe maybe save the immersive stuff for something that's really built for it. Maybe, Mm. I don't know, you know, you mentioned Assassin's Creed. I mean, you know, if I were in eighth grade learning about American history, you know, it would be great to have an immersive experience where I met George Washington, right? Yeah, yeah. And interacted with him. Um, And I actually, you know what, one of the really fascinating things is that, you know, I I, I interviewed the folks from Ubisoft who have been developing these games over the years. Mm. And the first time I talked to them a couple of years ago, they were very uneasy about the idea that, somebody might be using their games to teach history because obviously they're you know they're mature rated games yeah i do believe they're coming around to it and i do believe i think they've gotten so much feedback from people who say wow this is an amazing way to bring history alive i'm not going to predict what they're going to do but i think they're hearing that in a way that even i hadn't predicted yeah and the attention to detail that they put into that and uh you know ubisoft has gone on to create games that uh like like valiant hearts the great war that are more directed towards educational audiences and uh, and implementing like actual educational materials into their games and so it's it's encouraging to see some of the bigger companies kind of pick up the rope on this one yeah i think that's right and i and i think i mean to me the only real downside is that you know if they don't see the bottom line you know the numbers adding up that they'll, that they'll get impatient with it right that's that's the way in which I, I really hope it'll be sort of like a kind of a quiet revolution that that's sustainable that people feel like they if, if the AAA companies, if they don't see the the utility in working in this world, mm-hmm. they're not gonna. Yeah, yeah, it could be further splintering of the audiences, even. Yeah, but I think I do think they're interested in a big way. I mean, I've been to a couple of conferences and and and, and you know, sitting right alongside the teachers, you know, and and the and the education folks and the psychologists are you know folks from some of these big companies i think they're really interested maybe even in a, in a sort of a way of sort of like giving back you know this is almost like their charitable impulse right yeah we've seen the examples in your book of of glass lab of uh valve getting involved of minecraft edu and all these companies that are uh, that are giving back in that way which is really encouraging to see but it's very delicate you know i mean and i and i just hope it's i hope mm, they don't get fed up right. with what they have to do so now you've been uh, very generous with your time talking to us. I just had one final question on the way out is that we've seen scattered implementation of this type of thing around the world, particularly in Europe, with great results so far. How can our listeners petition for more effective educational reform should they be inspired to do so? After they read my book, you mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I guess one of the things that I think could really be effective is that 
I mean, if people mm. play better games, I think they'll have a better sense of what games can do. Mm. So if all we ever play is Candy Crush, we, you know, we're not going to get us. We're not going to get a, a more rich, complete sense of what a game can teach. But if people play some more interesting games, even AAA games that really take you by the hand and and help you learn big things, <laughs> help you do big things, and help you, like you say, you know, find out more about these worlds and find out more about history, then I think we're in a good place because people people will get that innately and they'll say, look, you know, I can learn, you know, about American Re- the American Revolution from Assassin's Creed. You know, why can't school? Why can't school teach that in such an effective way? Yeah, you yeah. know, my kid learned algebra on Dragon Box. You know, why can't my school do that? Um, and so I think in, in a way it's just sort of awakening people to the possibilities of all these tools and then they'll sort of, they'll want to see them in school. And I think, I mean, that's all, that, that's the only way that any of this stuff ever happens. It's never top down. It's always people demanding it, you know, mm. from the parent level. And even in some cases from, you know, the student level, people want to see things change. It's, it's great to know that like teachers, for instance, you know, are gamers just like everybody else. So I think they are starting to get it too. It, it'd startle your listeners probably, but I mean, you think about, you know, the youngest teachers getting into the profession now you know, are 22, 23 years old. I mean, these folks were born in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> born in the 90s. I mean, we remember the 90s, right? You know, I mean, they've never had a world without pretty sophisticated games. Yeah. I mean, if I'm 20 years old, you know, I've lived most of my life with an iPhone, mm-hmm. you know, in the last five, six years of my life with an iPad. So these are, you know, what I say is like, you know, nobody has an overhead projector in their house, right? That's right. But everybody's got an iPad or, or a tablet or, or a, a laptop. Everybody's got a, Basically, everybody's got a gaming tool. Everybody's got a system of some sort. Hmm. And I think that, that'll help a great deal towards helping people sort of understand what games can do. The book is The Game Believes in You, How Digital Play Can Make Our Kids Smarter. I've been reading this over the past couple of weeks and have been just uh, really enthralled by the different examples that have been brought up throughout and the, the types of educational reform that have been proposed. And it is a, a really fun and engaging read. It mixes up the material and keeps everything very fresh and accessible while still being really densely packed with some really fascinating facts throughout the entire book. Thanks for joining us. Greg Tapo. would you like to talk a little bit more about uh, where people can find your book or find you online should they decide to pursue your work further? Sure. I mean, the game is available on Amazon or in your local bookstore. My website is gamebelieves.com, one word. I'm on Twitter at gamebelieves or gtapo. You should follow me. Actually, you can follow me on Facebook too. Same same thing, gamebelieves. And yeah, love to um, talk to anybody who's interested in talking. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on Kane and Rinse. We're really thrilled to have you here. It's been really, really fun. Thanks so much for having me. We'll be back on Sunday with more regular Kane and Rinse programming. But until then, this has been Ryan Heyman. I'd like to give a special thanks to Mr. Greg Tapo for coming on the show and to Protodome for the intro and outro music for the show today. See you next time. <laughs>